I don't remember my first sermon, but I've heard a lot of first sermons because for the last 40 years I've been a part of the administrative team and faculty at Lincoln Christian College and Seminary, now Lincoln Christian University, and I have spent a lot of time with college students. I can remember when I was in seminary preaching at a small church just a few miles north of Lincoln. We had a young man come out on a Sunday night. He announced that this was his first sermon He said, tonight I'm going to preach on what the Bible says about God. And in less than seven minutes, he was done. (laughs) He said some of it more than once. He, He didn't say it very well, but he said what he knew that the Bible says about God. And I tell you that. To, to illustrate this point, it, it seems like when preachers start out, they don't have enough material to fill the allotted time. And then I don't know when it happens, but it happens. They reach a point where they don't have enough time for the allotted material. So here I am. I've been in ministry for 55 years. I've got a lot to say. That's why I put a lot of it down on a handout to try to guide me and uh, contain my thoughts for you as we talk about this uh, topic tonight of the roles responsibilities and relationships of church leaders. I call it the three R's, kind of like the old reading, writing, arithmetic, although these do all begin with R, okay, just so you know. I, uh, I use a cartoon in almost all of my leadership classes and seminars, and it's this cartoon, Craig, if we can pull it up there, of uh, these two men pushing and pulling this wagon with square wheels on it, with round wheels in the wagon, and I, I don't know exactly what the graphic artist had in mind when he, do, when he drew that because that was the very first uh, caption writing contest in Leadership Journal a long time ago. And the winning caption is there on the uh, cartoon. We'll never get anywhere if you keep asking so many questions, Harry, when the reality is Harry may be the genius. He, he may be one of those nonstop talking guys who's always asking questions, but it may be that he said, hey, Joe, do you think we'd get along any better if we could stop and take these square things off and put some round things on? And his friend just blows up. Stop asking questions. Just keep pushing. I don't know how that strikes you, but sometimes I have felt that. Working hard, pulling, pushing, feeling like I'm getting nowhere fast. And if that in any way reflects an organization or a church that is struggling to uh, move beyond some of its hindrances or obstacles, here's the good news I have for you. I didn't bring any answers in my briefcase. The round-wheeled answers to whatever a church's or organization's challenges are are within that organization. They're here. But the key to perhaps discovering some of them is to ask questions. So we're going to ask a lot of questions tonight. For instance, uh, let's just, before we get into the handout, start with this question. What causes you to feel discouraged in ministry? When Leadership Journal asked that question of its readers, 40% of its readers said board meetings. Okay, look at this question. What topics would you be most interested in reading about? When Leadership Journal asked that question of its readers, 67% said, how can we have shorter, better board meetings? Are you seeing a trend here? Well, here's another question. Does serving on a board help or hurt your spiritual growth? When one study asked that question of lay leaders, 80% of lay leaders said serving on the board 
hurt their spiritual growth. There's a dynamic within board functions that are sometimes frustrating, sometimes discouraging. And uh, I guess my question is, well, what's the problem? I I did my doctoral project uh, on how to help churches transition into an elder-led model of uh, protection of a church with clearly defined roles, responsibilities, and relationships for all. And one of the people that I studied was a gentleman by the name of John Carver. Uh, Here's what John Carver has to say about the subject of boards. He said, the failures of governance are not a problem of people. Good people, well-meaning people, hardworking people, pushing, pulling, doing everything they can. But it's an issue of process. He says, the problems lie squarely in our widely accepted approach to governance including its treatment of board job design, board staff relations, the chief executive role, performance monitoring, virtually all aspects of the board management process. He's writing that for the corporate secular world, but he's identified something that I think can have some application for a church, and that is how can we improve our process, our governance process. So that's really where I want to spend some time with you thinking about what this might look like. Let me just uh, illustrate it with another one of my favorite cartoons. The motion passes to form a committee to select a task force to see why we can never get anything done in our meetings. And my guess is that motion passed with three people in the room uh, by a vote of three to two. Because we have proxies that come into our boards and sometimes exercise a proxy vote when they're not present. And the reality is we're going to appoint a committee to select a task force to solve the problem. And the reality, the problem might be, let's get the right people together and begin asking some questions about our structure. So here's the first key question. You have it at the top of your handout. How does church structure help or hinder our ministry? There's an assumption behind that question. Structure is not neutral. Structures either help or they hinder. Okay, so how does structure help or hinder our ministry? Well, I'm going to tell you tonight the tale of three churches. I tell you that tale of three churches only because they illustrate the best of times and the worst of times to take a line from Charles Dickens' tale of two cities. I have served these three churches. I preached for these three churches. I have consulted with churches that fit into one of these three categories. And I'll tell you what I told uh, uh, some of the elders and Craig tonight at dinner. You are farther along in this process toward being a healthy church than most churches that I have worked with. And I'm excited to see all the things that you're doing so very well and so very clearly. But there may be some tweaking, some fine-tuning. I'll begin with the traditional church structure. This was the church that I served when I was in Indiana. I would describe it as a board-led church. That is, they had a board of elders and deacons that made the decisions about the church's ministry. Most of those decisions focused around administrative issues, money, facilities, personnel. And here's the secret about boards. Boards have great authority to make lots of decisions, but minimal responsibility 
to carry them out. Now think about it. A board can make a decision, but a board collectively doesn't do anything unless they delegate it to somebody to do it, to get done what it is they've decided to do. In those churches where boards are leading, the staff are oftentimes serving. They have heavy pastoral duties. The frustration I hear from from young men in ministry is that they feel like they have great responsibility but minimal authority because they always have to get somebody's permission to do what they know they need to do. And they're oftentimes hired to do the work of ministry. In that church structure, I can tell you, this is what uh, I faced when I was in Indiana, what began to develop over time was a congregation that was being served by the ministers and some of the ministries, and what began to develop was a culture of consumers and critics, where there were just certain people, a significant number of people, who just came to be served. They came to services. They did not use gifts for ministry. They came to be served. And uh, I don't know, Craig, if you've ever had this, but it's kind of like the uh, old movie critics, Siskel and Ebert, who used to sit and uh, critique the movies. They never made a movie. They never starred in a movie. They never paid for a movie. They just critique the movies on their way out. They give you two thumbs up, great sermon, great service, or two thumbs down. I hope we never sing that music again. It's the consumers and critics mentality that's oftentimes very, very common in a church. And oftentimes, in that very traditional church, the world outside is just kind of being ignored. I was so excited to drive up to your property and see right up front on your church sign and right out here in your foyer what this church is about, making more and better disciples. You're not ignoring the world that's all around you. Now, it's a short step from a traditional church to a dysfunctional church. The dysfunctional church is board-managed. Lyle Schaller, the old church consultant, was brought in to meet with a group of non-instrumental Church of Christ ministers. And and they asked him the question, how would you describe our churches? And this is how he described it. He said, your churches are destined to grow no larger than a committee of amateurs can manage part-time. That's an indictment. But I think his point is, boards function like a committee making decisions They're not professionals. They're board members. They have other vocations. They meet occasionally. And the people who perhaps have the leadership abilities and and education to lead are not empowered to lead in that board-managed context. Consequently, in these dysfunctional churches, the staff are oftentimes used up and abused. Ross Campbell of Ministering to the Ministers Foundation observed that 19,000 ministers are forcibly terminated each year. Only 7% of them for moral or ethical reasons. And oftentimes, he says, it's orchestrated by a gang of three. Three people who determine we need to get rid of the preacher. So uh, change is on its way. And in those churches, what's happening is they're led by the congregation. The majority of people of the congregation, uh, oftentimes the ones who complain the loudest are the ones who get their way. I I learned something in parenting a toddler. Our daughter's grown up and gone now, but uh, lives with her husband in Springfield where they pastor a church. But when she was a toddler, I learned this. The behavior you reward is the behavior you get. 
You might want to remember that with your one-year-old. The behavior you reward is the behavior you're going to get. So if you reward a baby or a toddler for throwing a tantrum, guess what? They're pretty smart. They'll throw a tantrum the next time they want to get their way. And oftentimes in the church, we give leadership to the group that complains the loudest or the longest. And the congregation is leading. When my son-in-law was uh, preaching in Springfield, they moved to a location just right along the interstate, just about a quarter of a mile from a Cracker Barrel restaurant. And I remember hearing John say, I just don't want our church to become a Cracker Barrel church. And I said to him, well, what's a Cracker Barrel church? He said, well, it has Cracker Barrel's mission. And I said, well, what's Cracker Barrel's mission? And he said, well, you could go on their website and find it. And I was about ready to grab him by the throat and say, yeah, in two seconds, you could just tell me what it is. What is it? He said, Cracker Barrel's mission is pleasing people. Purpose of the church is not to just please people. I'm going to say this to your leaders here. You cannot please all the people all the time. Okay? Get over it. It's not your job. Your job is to please God all the time. You can't please all the people all the time. Never going to happen. Church is too complex. Church is too divided. The church is too, uh, uh, too big to be able to please all the people all the time. So go about pleasing God. And what happens is that the world becomes inside the church. This, this was a church I served where uh, conflict was so rampant within the church. There were, there were indeed two elders who would not speak to each other. They had been in conflict for years. We had to have four elders because the two of them couldn't pray at the communion table at the same time. They would not speak to each other. The witness of that church was largely destroyed because of conflict unresolved. The biblical church structure is uh, the church I served in Illinois when we came back from Indiana, and I was preaching in Lincoln for the Jefferson Street Christian Church. It was an elder-protected church. And there are a lot of ways to describe what it means to be elder-protected. I use the three Gs. I got them from Rick Thompson in E3, Empowering Eldership. They guide, they guard, they govern. That's what elders do. Some have talked about the four Ds. They give direction, they oversee doctrine, they see about discipline and discipleship. Others talk about the five Ps, prayer, Purpose, pastoring, protecting, and principles or policies. Elder protected. An elder protected church empowers staff and ministry team leaders to lead ministries. That is gifted people, some paid, some not paid. Some, some call to vocational leadership, some, vo- some volunteers. Each one with responsibility, authority, and accountability lead appropriate areas of ministry. And in this context, the congregation is serving where members are contributing. They're equipped by the staff, by other leaders to do the ministry, and the world gets impacted. Now, I tell you that that's an elder-protected church model because the church where I'm now a member, Lincoln Christian Church in Lincoln, Uh, several years ago, worked through a rather lengthy process. It was about a two-year process where at the time we had a church board, get ready for this, of 56 members. Can you imagine a church board 
of 56 elders and deacons. Met monthly to make the decisions. Over about a two-year period of time, that church board determined that it would be wise to become an elder-protected church and appoint ministry team leaders over areas of ministry, some of them headed up by deacons, some of them by staff members, some of them by uh, uh, women deacons. We had deaconesses in, in that church context. And over a period of time, they unanimously voted to replace the board as it was with an elder-protected ministry team model. And immediately, we went from 56 people making decisions and being on the board to well over 150-some people that were involved in the ministries of the church that they identified. Now, it was in 2004 I did a survey to try to answer the question, how are our churches structured? So here's the question. How is your church structured, organized, and governed compared to other churches? There's the big question. I uh, did a survey of 1,411 churches within a 250-mile radius of Lincoln. I haven't updated it since I got the original data, but I had about a 20% response rate. So I'm drawing these conclusions from what I learned from them. 6% of the churches describe themselves as congregationally led. That is, the congregation made most of the decisions. I can still take you to some Christian churches in Illinois. There there may be some in Wisconsin where once a month after church, the whole congregation gets together and they vote to approve the light bill. They vote to uh, pay whatever other bills come due. The congregation makes all the decisions. The congregation is leading. 6%, most of them older, most of them rural, and most of them small. (laughs) Okay? Another 6% describe themselves as pastor-led. That is, the pastor is the one who makes most of the decisions. These were large churches, new churches, and far more urban or suburban churches that describe themselves as pastor-led. Now, the danger of a pastor-led church is when that pastor experiences a moral failure or a leadership failure, the whole thing can easily crumble apart. At the time I did this survey, 39% described themselves as board-led. That is, a board of elders and deacons make the decisions. We're led by a board of elders and deacons, 39%. And you'll notice in that particular model, the board is at the top of the inverted pyramid, and at the bottom is a small x. Well, that's a way of trying to say the board sees themselves as the ones who are in charge, the authority, and they hire a minister to do what they tell him to do. That's the uh, hiring of uh, someone to uh, carry out their will and their wishes. And in 2004, 49% of the churches described themselves in some, time, in some way as having a leadership team or an elder-protected model or a ministry team function. And in that model, you'll notice that all of the X's are the same size. Everybody's equal, but not everybody is in charge. It's, a, it's an hourglass model where it's wide at the top. There's a leadership team, and it's wide at the bottom where you have ministry teams, and it's narrow in the middle where you have a lead minister and ministry staff who communicate and cast the vision from the leadership team to all the ministry teams to see that the work gets carried out. Now, you're someplace in the middle of that. 
I'm not sure exactly how you would describe yourselves because you have an eldership and yet you have a board of, of elders and deacons and you have ministry teams. Am, am I accurate in, in uh, describing your structure in that particular way? Do you see elements of these various structures still at work within your governance structure, decision-making structure uh, here at uh, Onalaska Church? I was, um, I was teaching a group of seminary students last week, and in it, uh, I, I can always predict we're going to have uh, case studies on leading through change, uh, organizing ourselves for effectiveness, uh, managing conflict. Uh, it's pretty predictable. Uh, I always uh, have someone talk about decision-making, and then I get to do my lecture. It's a lecture on decision-making, and I want to see how this strikes you. I have a lecture that I entitled, The Most Important Decision That a Group of Decision-Makers Will Ever Make. And everybody wants to know, well, what is that? What is the most important decision that a group of decision-makers will ever make. It's the thing we never talk about, and it never becomes an issue until somebody steps out of line. It is deciding who decides what. Who has the authority and the responsibility to decide what? Now, if it's clear to all of you who makes decisions and who has the responsibility and authority to decide what you've wasted your time by inviting me here and being here tonight. But if there's any doubt or any confusion about who decides what, then we need to have this conversation. And I say that because this is what I hear from ministers. I, I thought I was doing what they wanted me to do, and I, I just did what I thought they'd asked me to do, and then I decided this, and somebody said, that's not your decision. You shouldn't have done that. And he Gets his hand slapped and reins pulled back in and he's reminded he stepped outside his authority. Or there was confusion about whether that was a board decision or was that a, an elder decision or was that a ministry team or committee decision or is that something we should take to the congregation as a congregational decision. Do you see how it easily gets cluttered? So clarifying, deciding who decides what is vitally important. And I want to try to give you a model for knowing who decides what. And I want to frame it in a way that I think is consistent with uh, perhaps some of the uh, uh, clearer um, um, perspectives on uh, leadership. So I want to uh, jump into this uh, next big question. What approach to governance recognizes the distinct biblical roles of elders and deacons or servants, and the unique contributions of a gifted lead minister and gifted ministry staff, paid and volunteer. This is kind of the study that our church went through, asking these questions. What's the Bible have to say about the role of elders? And I frame it this way. What do elders do as prayerful, protective SEOs? It's my conviction the church doesn't need a CEO. The church needs SEOs, shepherds, elders, overseers. I want to look at uh, Acts chapter 20 with you. So if you have a Bible, uh, I would ask you to uh, open it up to Acts chapter 20. It's in the 28th verse 
where Paul has called the elders of Ephesus to meet him in Miletus. And in Acts 20, verse 28, he says this, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So he's talking to elders, and he says, you've been made overseers. And then he says, be shepherds of the church of God. Do you see how in the New Testament those three words are used interchangeably? Elders are shepherds are overseers. It's not three separate offices. It's three functions of an elder. An elder, a shepherd, an overseer. We actually uh, uh, have a reference to, to leaders in 1 Thessalonians 5, and I'm going to use that text for one of my texts tomorrow uh, in my message for you. But in 1 Timothy 3, we have the very familiar passage of Scripture that lays out qualifications for elders and deacons. And perhaps there's women referred to in here, and we don't know for sure if that's the wives of the deacons or if this is women deacons. There's that possibility, but it's in 1 Timothy 3 that Paul writes, here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer, an overseer, elder, shepherd, desires a noble task. Okay, let me just stop right there and say it's not an office. It's not a position of power or authority. It's a task. And we'll talk tomorrow about the important task that it is to be an elder uh, in a church accountable for souls. The overseer is to be above reproach, and then he goes on to list the qualifications for an elder, and then he says down in verse 5, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, the words lead, to care for, to stand before, if, if anyone does not know how to care for his own family, how can he take care of God's church? So that's what elders do. They take care of God's church. And then he goes on in verse 8 to say in the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested. And then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. Okay, I want you to think again. It's not an office. It's not a title. It's a function, a task. Let them serve as deacons. In fact, we're going to see in just a few moments where that word deacon or the word for deacon appears in a couple of areas related to ministry. And then in verse 11, it says, in the same way, the women could be the wives or it could be the women who also serve as deacons. Because in Romans chapter 16, Phoebe is called a deacon. Okay, the word's used to describe men and, on at least one occasion, a woman who's described as one who serves as a deacon. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. And then he says the same thing about a deacon must be faithful to his wife, manage his children and his household well. Those who've served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. So it's all about serving well. That's what deacons do. Deacons serve. And then 1 Peter 5 is the other place where the words are used interchangeably, where the word for, uh, for elder and deacon 
are used interchangeably with shepherd, or excuse me, elder, shepherd, and overseer. So we've got Paul doing it in his writings. We've got Peter doing it in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Here's the, here's the command to elders, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Now, it was out of the study of scriptures like that that our elders came to the conclusion that their task as elders is to be the shepherding, overseeing group that cares for the flock entrusted to their care. That's the role of elders. And deacons and deaconesses became our ministry team leaders because the word deacon means minister. And so we had servants who led ministries, various areas of ministry. So what do deacons do as accountable servant assistants? They are uh, given their tasks by the elders. Elders define the responsibility for them. Where do the paid staff fit in? Well, it's in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that we'll see where the, where the uh, paid staff fit into this picture. 1 Peter chapter 5, or 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. That's first century way of saying they're worthy of a salary, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. The worker deserves his wages. So there's a place for, I believe in the biblical model of leadership, for a paid elder or a staff member who functions as an elder, one who carries out the responsibilities of an elder but is uh, there to empower and equip others. There's a word right there that I want you to underscore because I think it probably is, uh, for me, my favorite adjective in the question, where do paid staff fit in as empowered, underscore that, and empowering, because I believe that's the adjective that we really need to use to describe effective leaders in a contemporary church. They are empowered by God to do a particular task. They are empowering others by equipping them to carry out that task. And then the fourth question we wrestled with are what roles are maturing, ministering members of the church expected to fill? This took us down a path of trying to help our members discover their spiritual gifts. There was a reason for that. It became a conviction of our leaders that every single Christian, without exception, has been given at least one spiritual gift. And they are responsible for developing that gift and using that gift to serve others. There are several places that I could take you. Uh, we're going to look at Ephesians 4 uh, a little bit later this evening. But uh, the one verse that I often go to is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. 
that talks about spiritual gifts of members. So if, it, uh, if it's um, uh, true that each Christian has been given a spiritual gift, then uh, what are they responsible for with that uh, gift? Well, let's look at 1 Peter 4, verse 10. Each one. That sounds pretty inclusive to me. Each one of you. Not some of you. Not a few of you. Not a handful of you. But each one of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. I don't know how it happened. I don't know when it happened, but I know it happened. The American church became a little bit like NFL football. And here's how it happened. On any given Sunday in an NFL football game, on the, on, uh, on the field, you've got uh, 22 players on the field who could use some rest, surrounded by 50,000 people in the stands who could use some exercise. And that describes the American church. A handful of people doing all the work and we allow people just to come and sit on the sidelines and sometimes cheer us on, sometimes boo us when we don't play the game the way they want it to be played. But do you see the point? Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, being a faithful steward of God's grace in its various forms. It takes the whole body exercising all of its gifts to be the effective body that Christ wants his church to be. And those were the questions we began to wrestle with at Lincoln Christian Church when we were trying to sort out, okay, what does ministry look like here? Now, there's one passage that I, uh, it's a go-to passage for me uh, to illustrate the importance of this whole discussion. And it is Acts chapter 6. It's a familiar story. Luke is the historian Luke is recording something that happened in the life of the early church. And in Acts chapter 6, we've got uh, this lesson. We sometimes draw the wrong conclusions from it. I, I would stress for you, it is a descriptive passage, not a prescriptive passage. In other words, Luke is describing something that happened. He's not prescribing, this is the way it should always happen. But he's describing some principles that we can apply, not a pattern for us to adopt. It's not about elders and deacons. It is about 12 apostles and seven selected servants. But here's the insight that comes from uh, John Stott. It's in the context of Satan's third attempt to destroy the church. Chapter 4, he tried persecution. Chapter 5, he tries Corruption, Ananias and Sapphira. Chapter 6, he tries distraction. Let's look at the example in Acts chapter 6. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. 
So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. That word wait on is the word diakonia, from which we get our word deacon. To wait on tables, to serve the physical needs of these Grecian widows. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. It's the same word, diakonia, the ministry of the word, serving the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert from Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The key points in the book of Acts were Luke pauses and said because of this, the word of God spread. The number of disciples grew. And here's where I think is the insight into this passage. The apostles are confronted with a need. And um, I could imagine they could size it up like this. Well, it seems like we've only got three choices. One choice is we could just ignore the widows and maybe they'll be quiet and, and they, uh, they won't complain. Just ignore it. There's a reason why the apostles didn't do that. That's because they were men of the Word. They knew the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God is the Father of the orphan and the friend of widows. So you care for the widows. Second option. Well, guys, man, looks like night and weekends now. We've got to take on more. In addition to trying to give attention to ministering the word, we now have to wait on tables. So they could have just taken on more responsibility themselves and uh, burned out. Didn't do that. They used the wisdom, again, from the Old Testament to select others to whom they gave this responsibility, delegated the authority to carry it out, and I'm assuming they managed the results somehow that Luke doesn't tell us anything more about the complaining Jewish widows. Now, there's a lot of genius in what they did. The seven selected servants were all Greek-speaking names. So they were the cultural fit you see, there are some ministries that there's a cultural fit for, a generational fit or a gender fit. There's probably a reason why uh, I, I don't get asked to head up the nursery at our church or the children's ministry of our church or the women's ministry of our church. <laughs> okay? There are ministry tasks that uh, fit certain people because of their cultural background, their uh, 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 economic, social background, whatever it may be, there are reasons why there's a good fit. But notice the genius of how Luke describes this. Waiting on tables is called ministry. The ministry of the Word is called ministry. And John Stott's point that he makes out of this passage is this. The vital principle illustrated in this incident, which is of urgent importance to the church today, it is that God calls all His people to ministry. That He calls different people 
to different ministries, and that those called to prayer and the ministry of the word must on no account allow themselves to be distracted from their priorities. I think this is a destructive um, ploy of Satan that has worked. He has distracted spiritual leaders from giving spiritual leadership to the flock while they're waiting on tables. So who's to give attention to prayer and the ministry of the word? Ultimately, I believe that's SEOs, shepherds, elders, overseers. And yet oftentimes they're so busy with other tasks, other responsibilities. So who is paying attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word to see that the church is protected and that it is provided for and that we're being guided by prayer? That, I believe, is a spiritual leadership responsibility that can't be delegated and can't be lost. So here's what we did and what I would encourage you to do. I would begin to try to build a culture where everybody is involved in doing ministry, that we call everything we do a ministry. So you have a ministry of music, I assume, a ministry of worship. You have a ministry of preaching. You have a ministry of youth. You have a ministry of nursery care and children's work. You have a ministry of landscaping. You have a ministry of technology. You have a ministry of, of um, uh, cleaning. You have a ministry of finances. You have a ministry of missions. You have a ministry of uh, membership events. You, you, you call it all ministry because there, are no, there is no hierarchy of ministries. Just because these get platformed that doesn't mean they're more important than all the other ministries of the church. Now, that was a huge shift for us (laughs) to elevate ministry in the minds of our people. And then we could say to a new convert, a new Christian, where do you think you might want to plug into ministry? And they say, oh, I don't have a clue. Well, let's get to know you. What what are some things that interest you? We we use uh, at Lincoln a... Uh, a little acronym, GPS. Not, not a global positioning system, but GPS. What are your gifts? What is your passion? What's your sense of calling? And that's where people can find their place of ministry. What are your gifts? What's your passion? What's your sense of calling? Now, I'm going to give you just one reason why I think it's important for every Christian to be able to plug in to some way of serving in the church or outside the building, in the community, to find a way to use their gifts because, do you remember when Jesus told the parables of the faithful and unfaithful stewards? Steward is someone who's managing something for someone else. Been given something, responsible for it, but uh, someone else owns it. Someone else uh, is going to hold them accountable for what they've done. I I genuinely believe that God is going to hold Christians accountable for what have you done with my gospel? What have you done to further it? How did you use the gifts I gave you? And there will be some who say, I never knew anything about this thing called gifts. So I told my students just a week ago in class, 
There's, there's only one way that I know to change a church, and that's one person at a time, beginning with yourself. And then one person at a time, every new Christian needs to be brought into a culture where there's an expectation. We're going to help you find your place of service, and we're going to help you succeed in that place of service. We want to equip you. We want to train you. We, we want to come alongside you and help you do your part. Now, that's kind of the foundation that I wanted to lay from a biblical perspective. There are lots of other scriptures about elders and deacons that I would uh, encourage you to study. Other passage about ministry. Uh, we're going to look at Ephesians 4 uh, uh, in a few moments. But I want to just stop there. See if that has prompted some questions in your mind about um, governance structure, church structure, roles of elders, deacons, roles and responsibilities. Craig's got the mic here. Uh, if someone uh, has a question, raise your hand. And I'll warn you, I teach online, so I'm used to silence. So, okay. okay. I can wait a long time. Okay, here's a question. Let's get the mic, okay? Yeah. So you've talked about a phrase that I've seen used quite often, and, and that's the idea of ministries of um, the word, prayer and uh-huh. the word, and tables, uh-huh. something like that. What would it look like? What would you see in an elders meeting or in, in, in activities in the church that would show you that ministry of the word is actually being done, okay. for lack of a better word? What's the evidence of yeah. that? Well, I, I the would... table seems pretty clear to me. Yeah, serving, yeah. Ser- serving the table, and that's not a communion table. That's waiting on tables. That's serving the, the uh, providing food for the widows. That's an act of benevolence, which is a ministry of our church. But the evidence that I would see of uh, of elders uh, uh, being about the word and prayer is that we would change our agendas. So that before we do the business of the church, we begin by doing business with God. We're going to spend some time praying together, studying together, discerning God's will together. Uh, I would see evidence in such things as there are so many issues in our culture today and in churches today that need to be addressed from a biblical perspective. And that's where I think uh, it's ideal if a group of elders, and I said it at dinner tonight, uh, I, I, I don't advocate that your minister be an elder, but if he's not an elder, he should be treated as an elder, viewed as an elder, and be an equal among equals because he may lead you through study. I, and I'll give you one example. When I was at the church in Indiana, we were confronted with a strong charismatic presence in our church. And we as an eldership had to, had to figure out, okay, how are we going to respond to this? How, how do we, we, we had uh, people who were asking questions and people in leadership who were uh, uh, wondering what our position was going to be. So we had to study that issue together. We spent some time trying to arrive at consensus as an elder group, but we began by studying scripture together. There are all kinds of issues like that. That, that would give evidence that we are giving attention to the ministry of the Word. Learning ourselves, but more than that, it's teaching others. I had uh, coffee this week with um, a young man that I mentored when he was in seminary. And I took him with me to a couple of men's meetings in our area because we had had a chance to share our stories with each other. And uh, I knew BJ's story, and he knew mine. And... Uh, 
I wanted him to just share his story because uh, we both grew up in a Christian church, conservative church. He grew up in rural Iowa. I, I grew up in rural Illinois. When I grew up in church, it was assumed that I would figure it out, that I would come to Sunday school, that I would uh, read my Bible and learn how to pray, and that I could, uh, I could disciple myself. BJ, on the other hand, here's his testimony. The Wednesday after he was baptized on a Sunday, the age of 11 or 12, an elder showed up at his house. And he said, our policy is that when a young person accepts Christ, an elder will spend at least a year every week studying with you. If it's a young lady, it'll be one of our wives or some other woman in the church. And this is what I said at this men's meeting. I said, you see the difference? That an elder mentored and discipled BJ for two years. He's been in ministry. He's on his way to the mission field in Kenya, Africa now. And he said it was seeds planted by that elder over that two-year period of time that changed his direction of his life. And this is what I said at the men's meeting. Every church in America could start doing that tomorrow. There are mature people here who could take young, immature people and start teaching them ministry of the Word. So I think it's that. It's, it's being about the Word of God. Those would be the kinds of things that I, I think I would see in an elders meeting. I was actually uh, doing a presentation like this for a Church of Christ in central Illinois. Uh, they said, you can tell this story, just don't tell what church it is because it is a bit embarrassing. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of working my way through my presentation, and one of the elders um, raises uh, his hand. He says, I, I think I get your point. And I said, I haven't, I haven't made a point yet. What, what are you getting? He said, well, you need to know that we spent one night 45 minutes in an elders meeting talking about whether or not we should put soft cushioned seats on our toilets. Well, I'd been there, and all day, and they, they had the same old cold, hard kind that every other church did, so, so they didn't choose the soft, cushiony kind. But here's what he said. He said, I get your point. I said, tell me what, what you think my point is. He said, the world is going to hell. And we were talking about toilet seats. I said, you got it. Exactly right. You don't need to talk about that. That's somebody else's responsibility. Delegate it. Have a properties team, somebody, make the decision. And if, even if you don't like their decision, support it. Empower them to do the job. So that was how he got the point. We ought to be about the ministry of the word and prayer, spiritual leadership, not just stuff. Okay? I don't know if that, that answers your question. Those would be some of the things I think I would see in an elder group uh, that's about the ministry of the word. Put it on the agenda. Oh, no. <laughs> I appreciate that question, and, that, and you're precisely right. The more that we connect our vision, our mission, our values to Scripture, this, this is a, we're not just doing this because some bright guys got together with a blank sheet of paper and came up with this. We, we've discerned this from our study of Scripture together, and this is why we're leading in this way, in this direction. So that's, that's what's behind that. Yeah. Good question. Anybody else? Hey, so uh, actually a question about like the leadership teams uh -huh. and, and all that. So I'm in uh, grad school for ministry right now, so just took a class where we talked a lot about leadership teams. So I'm curious how you would go about uh, 
putting together a leadership team, would you say that needs to be just like the elders are the leadership team, or would you take people from different areas of the church and yeah. put them, you know, uh, like would you have any like staff members as part of that, and how would they, yeah. I guess, go about uh, with the other people in the church, I guess, setting out, you know, their plans and goals mm-hmm. without leaving people feeling like they've, you know, been left in the dark or yeah. not knowing what's going on. I'm just curious what your thoughts yeah, are. Yeah, I, I, would, I would put your elders and your ministry staff as your leadership team. They are the ones who are responsible for the whole. A ministry team is responsible for one piece of the whole, one area of responsibility within the overall. And, I, and again, because I believe your ministry staff and elders are the accountable ones, tomorrow we're going we're gonna to look at the language of being accountable for souls. They, they have a responsibility that no other, no other group in the church has. And it's an awesome responsibility. It's a frightening responsibility. It's why I believe there ought to be a structure that, that helps them do what they're being held accountable to do. So I would put your elders and uh, uh, ministry staff in that uh, leadership team. And then your ministry teams are led by, could be a deacon or a deaconess. And I, again, I don't get hung up on titles because it's about a function. It's a team that's doing ministry. So I use the team language because a leadership team tells us, okay, this is what they're doing. They're giving leadership. How are they doing it? Not as a solo uh, individuals, but as a team. They're doing it together. So the worship ministry team, it's responsible for planning worship. How do they do it? As a team. And I would always have a team of people to do ministries. More places for more people to plug in. And to feel like they're empowered to do a job, which is why the elders sometimes have to kind of keep their hands off. They have to, okay, we're de- defining the responsibility, delegating the authority, and, and here's what we mean by accountability in, in uh, carrying this out. So that's the leadership team model that I would use here. Yeah. And again, I think it's a biblical model. It, it fits this model of elders and a paid minister who, is, uh, who functions as an elder being, uh, being a part of that team. So, yes, question over here. Thank you for handing out the handouts for me this evening, oh, too. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> um, so would you use the GPS system to make uh-huh. sure there's no little X's? Because on your page, the congregational-led church has a bunch of little X's, and then you start to see the big X's as you go through the different structures. And in the last structure, there are no little X's. Yeah. So do you use the GPS system to make sure that all of your X's are big X's? Well, there, there are leaders of teams, but those teams are, are um, led by people. Who, that this is their ministry area, and there are others who are doing that ministry area as well. So I, I, I would put them all... The base of that pyramid is really wide, but it's grouped. So there's about five or six working in this area of ministry and two or three over here. And I would never do a solo ministry. The reason for that is if a, if a person wants to start a ministry, my first thing that I would say to them is find somebody who shares your passion for it. And then we can maybe get this started because what happens if somebody starts a ministry and then they leave, guess what? There's a hole or the elders have to pick up the pieces and figure out. So put a structure in place that can kind of carry it on, multiply. So I, I, would, I would see all the minist- members as ministers. And so it's a broad base. It gets bigger all the time. 
but they're grouped uh, with those big X's who have, has a team leader around them. Okay? Yeah. It's a good question. Okay. GPS, gifts, passion, and a sense of calling. This is, this is what I just sense I'm created to do. People are talking about trying to figure out their purpose. Why am I here? And uh, I, I think people coming into a church want to find a place to serve, a place to plug in. They want to be challenged, given an opportunity to develop and grow, to be equipped for more than they ever dreamed of, and to feel fulfilled in doing ministry in some way. Yeah. Okay. Yes, back here. Have you found, um, have you found in working with other churches an effective method to get these messages across beyond the pulpit. Um, Craig's wonderful at his messages, but it seems like a lot of them, when we talk to people, they don't seem to make that connection. For instance, um, uh, do you have any good ideas for how you get people to quit thinking about, well, I was in the hospital and each elder did not come to visit me, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. I have this issue, and Craig did not pray for me. You know, that, that hierarchy of thought of the elders uh, or the deacons, but yeah. usually it's the, the, deacon, or the elders or the minister are put at this. Yeah. They are the one responsible for doing this part of it, and somehow I am not qualified to do that, you yeah. know, as a, a mere congregational member, you know. Well, a part of that is helping people discover their gifts. And in the whole gifts conversation, this is a conversation I can remember having. If you are in the hospital and, and you are waiting for me to come see you, you may not want me to come see you because I don't have the gift of mercy. I'm just not wired that way. I, I'm not the best hospital caller. But here's somebody who is a gifted pastoral caregiver. And this is her ministry, okay? So that's part of teaching spiritual gifts to help people understand we respond to needs not on the basis of position, but on the basis of giftedness and relationships. So uh, my question sometimes would be, so did anybody come see? Oh, yeah, my my Sunday school teacher was here or uh, some of my friends from church were here. Well, praise God you had caregiving from the body. And I would, I would pre- preach and teach regularly on the one another's, the 55 one another statements in the New Testament, love one another, pray for one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, serve one another, uh, on and on they go. And, and to teach what it means to be a community, a community of uh, engaged believers. I, I, I love your... Um, um, your statement uh, that's on your website, a multi-generational church making more and better disciples. That's well stated. I told the elders tonight I'd probably tweak it just a little bit and talk about, about being intergenerational. You, you want the generation serving each other. And maybe rather than use the word church, a community. We are an intergenerational community. That means we're doing something together, life together. That's where I think we begin to teach it. And ultimately, you change people sometimes just one conversation at a time, and it's slow. But uh, it begins with the pulpit. You lead from the pulpit, but beyond that, it's, it's other, uh, other means that you have of, uh, of trying to help people get the picture of what we're doing here and why. Begin, because we all have our expectations of ministers, of 
what we expect of them, and elders, what we expect of them. So let's see if we can't figure out how we could drive it biblically rather than just culturally. So I don't know if that helps you much or not, but that's where I'd start, I think. So, yeah. So you may not want the elder who scored low on the mercy giving to visit you in the <laughs> <That's> hospital. <right. laughs> <laughs> or pastor this. Well, I want to look at Ephesians 4 with you as, again, a, a picture of, uh, uh, of a healthy church. And I want to draw my uh, kind of observations of this picture of a healthy church from Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. This is Paul, again, writing to this Ephesian church where he met with the Ephesian elders at Miletus in Acts 20. Same group, same church. Here's what he wrote to them. It was he, Christ, he's talking about, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets. And earlier in in Ephesians 2 talks about having laid a foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. So, So those are foundational gifts, apostles and prophets. Some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. What are these people to do? These evangelists, pastors and teachers are to prepare, the word is equip, to equip God's people for works of service. Guess what the word is? Diakonia, ministry. And again, let me suggest it's inclusive. It's not some, it's all. They're to to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And it goes on. Then we will be no longer infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Each part does its work. You see again, stresses the importance of each body part functioning. It's the expectation. That's what the scriptures teach about the body. So, Here are six conclusions I've drawn from this passage of Scripture. Number one, Christ is the head of the church. It's not the preacher's church. It's not the elder's church. It's not the founding member's church. Christ is the head of the church. He's the one who said, upon this rock, I will build my church. I was having a conversation with a preacher friend. He said, we were talking about our first churches, and I was talking about elders that nurtured me. And he said, oh, oh my goodness, I I was in a church that was owned and operated by the wife of one of the elders. And we laughed because I knew that he wasn't serious, but, but it felt like that. There was one person who seemed to always get her way. And that was a needed reminder. Christ is the head of this church. He owns it. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, Paul says, God shed his blood for the church. I haven't done that. You haven't done that. There's only one who's the head of the church, and that's Christ. 
And God appointed him to be head over everything for the church. So Christ is the head. Now, the church is Christ's body. Of all the different images in Scripture, there are several. The the church is like the branches on the vine. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is like a building, not this building, but it's a body. A living, dynamic, changing, growing organism. And in the natural world, when a body doesn't grow or change, we, we describe it as deformed or dysfunctional. Christ's church is an organism, not an institution, a body, not a building, a spiritual house, not a physical structure, a people, not a place. So I, I have a lecture that I used to use when I was teaching a worship class that was entitled, Sloppy Terminology Leads to Sloppy Theology. So what do we communicate when we say, well, let's go to church? It's like, this is the church. If, if COVID, the pandemic taught us anything is... We don't go to church. We are the church. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, wherever we are, we are the church. The church is not a building. The church is not a structure. The church is a body, the body of Christ, made up of all these parts. Every part's supposed to have a function, and every function's supposed to do its part. That's the assumption behind this. Christ gives the task, number three, of equipping the church to certain qualified leaders. He uses the words evangelists, pastor-teachers, and that phrase pastor-teacher, I I would equate with our shepherd-elder-overseer group. And these are affirmed by the church. We don't know how, but I, I believe elders in the first century church were appointed, sometimes by Paul, sometimes by Timothy or Titus. But in most churches, they are affirmed. We have bylaws that tell us how. Elders get affirmed. I haven't looked at your bylaws, so I can't speak to them, but I would have one observation to make. I don't know why we have turned being the church into being a, an, 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 uh, an anonymous Jeffersonian democracy where we hide behind secret ballots and we vote. Here's, here's the way I would uh, prefer church elections be done. Here are the names proposed to us for elders. And if you have a ballot, it ought to be written something like this. If there is a biblical reason why you you believe this person should not be an elder, please state it in writing and sign your name. Now somebody can come talk to you and counsel you and say, oh, we looked into that. We we heard that same thing you just said. But we looked into that. We vetted that. And that that is a rumor that needs to be put to rest. Or they may learn something they didn't know. Or to say, if you know a biblical reason, come to one of us as elders and uh, tell us what that biblical reason is. There was a dysfunctional church that changed the course of its direction when they decided one night in a board meeting that somebody does not attend this church. And here's how it happened. A man spoke up and said, one of the uh, leaders spoke up and said, "I I think from now on, we just need to agree that somebody does not attend this church. And they looked at him and said, well, what do you mean? He said, anytime some, one of us begins a conversation with what well, somebody told me, we stop right there and say, you either give us a name or you don't tell us anymore. We're not going to hide behind being anonymous. 
It was a dysfunctional church that finally grew up and started being more mature. And they could be honest and transparent and talk about things openly rather than hide behind secret things. Well, somehow these elders are affirmed by the, by the congregation, by the church. It's a delegated trust from God through His Word, so that's to be guarded. And it's a task from the church through affirmation that's to be done, but it's rooted and grounded on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's the Word. It's rooted and grounded on the Word, the elders. Number four is not in Ephesians 4. I'm adding it, but I'm assuming it based on what I read elsewhere. The church organizes itself for effective ministry by selecting qualified servants like they did in Acts 6, deacons, men and women for specific ministries. They assist the elder shepherds in carrying out the church's ministry. And then notice this, they are doers of ministries, not decision makers about a church's ministries. There is nothing that would indicate that a servant is a decision maker. He's a servant, or she's a servant, a doer of a ministry. Now, they can make decisions about their ministry, but not about the whole church's ministry. They're not held accountable for the overall direction and oversight of the church as elders are, so they are not equal to elders in voice or vote. Elders have a unique responsibility, and I want to define that for you in just a moment. And then every member of the church is involved in the ministry of the church, gifted by the Holy Spirit for the common good, equipped by leaders for effective service, serving others to the glory of God, and then the church is able to grow. And that is the picture of a healthy church structure that I think is absolutely uh, crucial. Now, I want, to, uh, I want to go on to the next slide that will begin to look at a leadership model for the 21st century. This is, this is in the material, but it's not in exactly the same order here. But here's the purpose statement for an eldership. And I came to this when I realized that uh, in working with churches, doing my doctoral work, I, I discovered that almost everyone could tell me what an elder does. But when I asked, but what's the purpose of the eldership? What do you mean? Well, what's the, what's the one unique contribution that the elders make collectively that no one else is responsible for making, but it's vital? And this was the statement that I came up with. A leadership team comprised of an elder and a lead minister or ministry staff that serves on behalf of Christ, okay? There's the reminder that they're not the owners, they're not the head. They serve on behalf of Christ. They serve on behalf of His church and on behalf of those He desires to reach through His church, specifically this church. Elders, let me remind you, I, I believe you're leading two churches. It's not schizophrenia. You're leading the church that is and the church that God wants this to become. Directions you take, decisions you make, Actions will have consequences. And I believe God is calling you to lead this church, serve this church, and those that He desires to reach through this church. Here's what they do. They will see to it that the church achieves what God wants and avoids what is unacceptable. That's a lot to keep you busy. <laughs> see to it. That doesn't mean you do it all. But you see to it 
that the church achieves what God wants. Well, how are you going to figure that out? Study Scripture. Listen. uh, uh, Learn. Observe. Understand your community. What does God want you to achieve in this community? And what does He want you to avoid that is unacceptable? That's the big picture purpose of an eldership. And I'm an advocate that everybody in the congregation needs to be very clear about that. So if they're upset about something that's happening uh, in physical properties and they come to an elder, well, why, why don't you elders do something about this? Stop. Let me just stop you right now. That's not our responsibility. We have a physical properties team. Have you talked to them? Okay. That's the way we handle complaints or issues or concerns that people have. It's not being irresponsible. It's not ducking responsibility. It's delegating clearly to others so that the elders can be about this, seeing to it that the church achieves what God wants and avoids what is unacceptable. Um, Let me give you an illustration again out of my class last week. Um, The the elders of of a church had empowered their youth minister who was over the area of children's ministry as well to uh, initiate a check-in process for their nursery and children's area. And uh, one of the elders um, decided he wanted to move his Sunday school class down into the children's wing. And they had agreed that uh, part of the check-in process was that everybody that worked in the nursery or the children's area in this day and age needed to have a background check. And now there were were people coming down into the children's wing for an adult Sunday school class taught by one of the elders. And uh, the young man saying, what do I do? And finally, he he got the attention of the elder. And um, the rest of the story is it was a church that had pedophiles in the church. And it was known. They had a reputation in the community. And um, if I were an elder, I'd sit up at night worrying about things like that. How do, we, how do we see to it that we avoid something that's unacceptable, having one of our children abused? Well, you've got to put safeguards in place, boundaries in place. So one of those boundaries was no, no child care worker without a background check. Okay? That was their process, but an elder had skirted that. And uh, that, I think, is not really grasping this big responsibility that's here. Okay, that's one piece right there. So it's a leadership team comprised of an eldership and a lead minister that does that, sees to it that the church achieves what God wants and avoids what's unacceptable. Next one there, Craig. They guide, they guard, they govern. Or the four Ds or the five Ps. You can say it however you want. But these are leadership responsibilities to guide the flock of God that's entrusted to your care, like Psalm 23, John 10, other places that talk about shepherding and guarding God's family, caring for God's family entrusted to you, just like you would guard your own family to protect them. You're protecting the church that's entrusted to you and governing, leading them, uh, governing God's people in a way that uh, is appropriate. And and I'm convinced a way to do that is to be sure you've got your three-legged stool in place. Define responsibility, delegate authority, 
and determine accountability. A two-legged stool is wobbly. A one-legged stool is, is about uh, a, a clown in a circus. <laughs> a three-legged stool has all three of those elements. Define responsibility, delegate authority, determine accountability. And you can do that through uh, guiding principles along the way. Next one. So it's uh, really about, I call it, principle-based governance. And this is, the, this is the graphic that I use to try to picture that. Everybody in your church, everybody in a leadership team needs to know what green is. Green means, on the, spot, on the stoplight, what's it mean? Go. Everybody needs to know, where are we going? It's time to go. Going where? Green means go. So we clearly define the responsibility in terms of, well, what's, what's the end that we want to accomplish? What's the vision? What's the outcome what is the responsibility? And, and, I, and I loved on your website, each one of your ministry teams had a pretty good statement of what the responsibility of that team is. So you have defined go, all right? What does yellow mean? Caution, okay? This means cautious here. It's because we're going to measure this. We're going to monitor this. There's going to be accountability in this. And Red means stop. Yep. Everybody needs to know where do we stop. So, for instance, um, a, um, a finance team uh, could have a clearly defined responsibility of overseeing the finances of the church as a team. But they need to know what their boundaries are or what their stop areas are or what their limitations are. So, so you delegate authority not by telling people what they can do, but by telling them the few things they can't do. And I have a big umbrella statement that goes like this. You don't do anything unethical, illegal, immoral, imprudent, unscriptural, heretical. You don't do those things. So to a finance team, you might say, well, I'll, I'll give you an illustration. I had a young man who became the finance chair of a church uh, he invest, He was a financial planner, uh, so he invested the uh, church's uh, building fund in uh, high-risk securities, and they lost almost everything they had, 2008. So, you blame him? Could. I'd, I'd blame the elders. Did you give him any boundaries? Did he know what he wasn't supposed to do as the chair of that team? No, they'd never communicated that. So he's using his, what he thinks is his uh, human smarts to do what he thinks is best, and he made a tragic mistake with it. But it's a matter of, okay, what are the, what are the areas where we say, stop, don't do this, don't go beyond this boundary? Now, th- now that shouldn't be surprising to us. We have the Ten Commandments, and those are boundaries. Those, those are the fences so I, I equate this to uh, understanding what it's like not only to look at a stoplight that has red, green, and yellow, but also a football field. Everybody looking at a football field understands that the team is moving toward a common goal. Everybody understands the objective of the game is to get the ball over the goal line or through the goal posts so we can score more points than the other team. There's no question, no doubt, no confusion about the object of the game. 
by measuring progress, we've got these goal lines. So today we're on the 20-yard line with 80 yards to go. Next year, wouldn't it be nice if we were on the 50-yard line with just 50 yards to go? In other words, right now we only have 20% of our congregation involved in a ministry. Wouldn't it be nice to get at the other 20-yard line with only 20 yards to go? Well, now we've got 80% of our congregation involved in doing ministry. And it's understood we play the game within these boundaries. We don't play the game out here. We don't do things out here. We operate within boundaries, predetermined boundaries. So we understand the objects, object of the game, the rules of the game, and we understand how we're going to measure progress in the game. All of that is an important part of this uh, process. So let's do one more here. Leadership team that leads through lead minister. Responsibility, what the vision, mission is, who's charged with achieving it. I've got some examples of uh, vision there, but you've got a great uh, uh, clear picture of your mission, a multi-generational church, uh, making more and better disciples. Couldn't, uh, couldn't improve on that. With authority, what's that mean? Uh, next one, uh, Craig. Oh, let's skip that. We'll... The authority means there's boundaries. Boundaries create freedom. Free to do, be creative, but don't cross outside these lines because these things are inconsistent with our values, with biblical teachings, with our principles. So no activity, decision, or behavior that's immoral, illegal, unethical, unbiblical, or imprudent. And then finally, accountability is how we measure performance, monitor progress. That's where there's reporting. We get a report from a ministry team, uh, and then uh, that's, that's where we're seeing to it that the mission is being fulfilled, that the vision is actually being accomplished. And all of that, I think, is a, uh, is a crucial, crucial piece of uh, fulfilling the, uh, the task. So I, I want to draw your attention to uh, uh, a chart on the back page. Um, uh, this model distinguishes responsibilities in terms of who's leading and who's managing. Using the framework of John Cotter in A Force for Change, a leadership team provides leadership for the ministry by empowering, equipping staff and servants to manage the ministry. So um, look at what's on the left-hand side of the page under the management heading, planning, budgeting, organizing, staffing, controlling, problem-solving. Look at what's on the right-hand side under leadership, establishing direction, aligning people, motivating and inspiring. Everything on the left hand is about coping with complexity. What's on the right hand is about creating appropriate, I would argue, God-ordained change. Here's what I, uh, I want you to see from that. Who knows best how to plan and budget, organize and staff, and solve problems in an area of ministry. Let's just take, for example, a children's ministry or a nursery. Let's just get that specific. Who knows best how to plan, budget, organize, staff, problem solve a nursery ministry? Not a group of five elders that meet once a month. One of my cartoons that we did show was 
elders meeting. The next item on the agenda is what kind of diapers do we buy for the nursery? Elders, that's not your issue. Empower the ministry team to manage their ministry, to plan, to problem solve, to budget. Now, somebody has to approve the overall budget of the congregation. That's the work of a finance team and elders, ultimately, because a budget reflects your plan. But, but the uh, example I always give is uh, uh, in the spring of the year, we have a, one of our teams is, a, is an athletic a mem- a ministry team. They oversee uh, our, our team's involvement in various sports opportunities. So, so in the spring of the year, they're ready to purchase some softball equipment for summer softball league. They don't have to come to a board meeting or an elders meeting and say, we'd like to have permission to spend $250 for equipment. It's in their budget. Budget's been approved. They're empowered to spend what's in that budget. They only have to ask the cash flow question. So they call the treasurer, say, hey, just check. Is this a good time to spend our allotment for money that's already in our budget? So, so there's no, well, I've got to wait till I get approval. No, they're empowered to carry out their ministry. A lot of freedom in that. But who knows how to plan and budget and organize and staff an area of ministry? The technology ministry? Not me. People who do technology need to have some say in what happens with technology. Okay? That makes sense? The difference between managing and leading. Now, if the elders are forced to be over here in this management column, spending their time doing those kinds of things as well, then who is establishing direction? Who is aligning people? Who is motivating and inspiring? Who's creating appropriate change? In the typical church, it's not being done. We're just assuming that people are going to find their place. We don't spend time praying about talking about vision and direction and those kinds of things. So this is a model that I think allows teams to manage their ministries and leaders to really lead. So that's, uh, that's where I'm going to stop. There's some more information in that handout that uh, you may look over. But this is, uh, uh, I think, uh, perhaps a next step for you to have some conversation about here at uh, Onalaska Church of Christ uh, to um, hone in on who decides what who's managing, or my questions at the bottom, who's governing, who's leading, who's managing, who's ministering, with a goal of getting the whole church involved in ministering, organized in a way that their teams can see that they're ministering effectively and toward the shared vision and common goal that you have. So comments or questions? Well, I, I think you... They may have several capabilities, and that may, may start out small. We're in a smaller church. They're doing several things, but as the church grows, there may be other people who uh, are equally capable of picking up some of those responsibilities. What you want to avoid is burnout, and burnout can sometimes be doing too much. Uh, more often than not, it's doing too much for which you don't have the spiritual gift to do it. Uh, in spiritual gifts, we're, we're empowered by God to, uh, for His work to be done in us and through us. Uh, so I think you want to avoid doing too much. But uh, I, I would certainly limit what, uh, what ministries elders are involved in. They need to be really focused on their eldership task.
Yeah, great. You mentioned your church going through a two-year process, moving from a board-led and board-governed church to more of an elder-protected church and um, really empowering and delegating those ministry responsibilities. Could you give us just a a brief breakdown of what that process looked like over a two-year period? Yeah, we had a team that uh, the... the, um, um, a team of people that led the studies, they produced white papers that were shared with the congregation, were shared with the board, shared with the congregation, answering such question as, biblically, what do elders do? What do deacons do? What's the place for women in ministry? Uh, what's, uh, what's the expectation of members? We rewrote our bylaws as a part of that process because our bylaws were like a lot of church bylaws, focusing on rights, voting rights and privileges of members. And again, you study the Scripture, and you won't find that in place in Scripture. That's, that's uh, kind of an adaptation, again, from our Jeffersonian democracy, I think. But nonetheless, we, we went through the bylaws process. So it was a series of studies shared openly. They were available for people to look at, so it didn't come as a surprise. Uh, when the board replaced itself with, uh, um, with the elder-protected model and the ministry teams, we failed in one key area, and that was we, we uh, failed to communicate to the whole in a way that was really effective because now rather than 56 people knowing everything that was going on, uh, a handful of people knew this piece that was going on. So we actually turned our board meeting night into a ministry meeting night where uh, these teams met, and if there was something that needed to be reported to the whole group, they reported it, but there weren't decisions being made in the whole group. That was delegated to the teams. So, so that's kind of what that process looked like. And again, I, I said this to you earlier, you all are farther along in this process than we were. Uh, first of all, you don't have an encumbered board of 56 people. And secondly, you've already uh, had some uh, elements of elder protected, uh, but I think there's probably some refinement that uh, you could make there. And again, I haven't looked at your bylaws, so I, I don't know what your structural uh, questions might be or issues might be. So, yeah. So they have to catch up with what you're planning to do. You don't want to skirt them, but um, you want to bring the congregation along uh, in that process. So, yeah. And for us, I'll, I'll just tell you what our uh, outcome was. Uh, we determined that uh, uh, we would draw a line at the eldership and the lead minister. We had women on staff, uh, but at the eldership and the lead minister, those would be the roles filled by men in our context. That was after our study of Scripture where our elders concluded that's an appropriate place. So teams could be led by women as well as men, and we had, we had women uh, serving in education, missions, um, worship. So there were... Areas of responsibility, but not at the eldership. I think that's where every local congregation has to resolve that for themselves, what what that uh, should look like. Any other questions? As an elder, I kind of have a hard time trying to figure out exactly, for instance, I have a passion for education. Mm -hmm. If I'm on a ministry team for education and I speak at those meetings... I know there are people who will say, oh, well, this is what the elder wants. And it's like, no, I'm just voicing an opinion here. I'm just sharing a viewpoint, et cetera. Yet at the same time, there's things that 
you might be passionate about. You see, this is a direction we could be going, things we could doing, be doing. So I don't want to come across as exerting some kind of authority here right. while at the same time be an example of service. You know? mm-hmm. uh, so it, do you have any insights for yeah. how to walk that line in a way yeah, that the congregation can distinguish? You know? you, you've identified it, and I think you preface it by saying, uh, when I come into these meetings, I do not have my elder hat on. I have my education ministry team hat on. I do not speak in these meetings with, with the voice of an elder. I speak as a ministry team member. Well, you just have to probably repeat that until everybody finally gets it. But that's what you do. You, you have to take your hat off. And you say, okay, there are times when I'm a part of the elder leadership team, and there are times when I'm a member of a ministry team. And I'm, I'm, here in a, I'm not here as an elder, so I don't speak with authority of an elder, the voice of an elder. I'm, I'm an equal among equals here on this team. So I think that's crucial that you communicate that. Otherwise, uh, you will have people who will deferring to you, thinking you're speaking on behalf of all of the eldership, and you may not be. You may just be sharing your opinion on this from, from your perspective. So, yeah. Well, I had a, maybe, maybe a comment about what Bruce said, but I could talk about that later. But so you talk about this two-year process and changing from one mode to the other mode. And my experience as an engineer on complicated machinery, everything you did affected somebody else. And so in the end, you concluded, well, we can't, we can't start until we finish. Just anecdotally, how, did you, how do you transition with some degree of continuity from maybe elders doing the wrong thing, I say the wrong thing, mm-hmm. the non-elder thing too much of the time, and, you know, what's, what's the most important? Yeah. Is, it, is it to train other people first to take over these things? Mm. And anyway, just maybe just yeah. an anecdote or two. To, yeah, I, I don't know that I could speak too much into what we did at Lincoln Christian Church because I was on the outside as a member. I wasn't involved in the process. But in, in consulting with churches, what I recommend is that, that you can begin to make some of these changes gradually if there aren't any uh, impacts uh, on bylaws or governing uh, documents uh, but the key is having trained people ready to lead your ministries. So if there's a ministry being led by an elder, one of your first responsibilities is to raise up someone who can take over that ministry so you can kind of slide out of, of that oversight role. And uh, but you can begin to do those things before you get to the end of the whole process. And, I, and our process was from before we ever raised the question to the time we got all of our bylaws done. That was a two-year process. So I, 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 I depict leading through change as you're always leading through change toward your vision over time. You're not doing it overnight. The risk is that we sometimes push the change too fast and you want to take your time. Get, be sure that you're getting people on board as you go so, and that you have those people in place. And this may be in the next level of things that you would teach in this, but, but, but I, will, I will say something about what Bruce said. You know, and I mentioned this uh, this nonprofit that I'm actually on a consulting committee for, and they're, they're talking about exactly this thing on board. Sure. And yeah. So one of the principles of the board is all the things that you're saying, but also that board speaks with one one voice. voice. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. if a board member wants to participate with the in a company, the operations, or yeah. an elder on a ministry, they are volunteers. Right. Serving that committee, yeah. 
and they they have no right to speak for the elders. That's now, right. If the elders yeah. are all together and send that message, and so mm -hmm. that's the way that's handled. They yeah. want people on the board with talents to work with committees, but sure. that's one of the boundaries. That's the boundary. The boundaries. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's absolutely right, and I would advocate that. Uh, I, I put it like this: It's okay for elders or your board members to stick their nose in, check it out, but it's not okay to put your hands on and try to fix it. That's the team's job to try to fix it. So uh, it is appropriate that you try to walk that uh, tightrope pretty carefully. Yeah, And that's where I think the empowerment for your ministry staff really comes. If they know clearly what their roles are, what decisions they can make, uh, they feel empowered and fulfilled in doing it, not frustrated. And um, the, the one dynamic out of my... Uh, a uh, survey that I did several years ago that I thought was really quite important uh, was that there was one factor that correlated with church health. It wasn't the age of the church, the size of the church, the location of the church, the conservative nature of the church. The one variable that correlated with church health was the tenure of the minister. Healthier churches had ministers that had been there 15 years or over. So you want to Get a ministry staff and keep them. Your, your church has a history of that. You want, to, you want to keep that because that makes for healthy churches. Yeah. Son-in-law uh, is on staff at a church. Uh, he's been there 22 years. His associate's been there 21 years. The youth minister's been there uh, coming up on 18 years. Uh, that's pretty significant in a time when ministry turnover is pretty, uh, pretty short. So. Well, you've been very gracious. Uh, I, I want to be sensitive to your time this evening. I, I'm looking forward to worshiping with you tomorrow. And tomorrow I'm actually going to look at uh, three passages of Scripture in the New Testament that are written to followers about how they are to respond to their leaders. Uh, and uh, you'll, uh, you'll see the perspective that I, uh, I will bring uh, on that uh, for, uh, for tomorrow. So I would... Um, I pronounce a benediction, a blessing over you. It's from Ephesians chapter 3, and it is this. It's Paul's doxology. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we could ever ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.